Welcome to Inside the Four Walls. Sports nutrition, active nutrition, and lifestyle nutrition is our world. It's changing, it's adapting, and it's evolving at a pace not many of us had anticipated. And we want to know more. I've learned over the years that some of the best insight is derived through conversation. And if you truly want to understand the dynamics of the market, you need to look beneath the surface. You need to ask those from within. So that's what we're doing. We talk to people from within the industry, those that have opinion, those that have been at the coalface, and those that have been there and done it. So buckle in and enjoy the ride. I'm Nick Morgan, and this is Inside the Four Walls. Welcome to episode 11 of Inside the Four Walls. And today we move back to one of my favorite categories, which is healthy snacking. We have Stefan Lagerquist, who is the CEO of Nix, which is a Swedish healthy snacking brand. Now, if you don't know Nix, you definitely should, but they are a very cool brand with a nice set of products in bars, protein bars, and also more recently functional or better for you, ice cream. Now, this isn't just a normal healthy snacking brand. This won't just be a normal discussion of, hey, here's another protein bar. There is a lot more to Nix than meets the eye. And Stefan articulates that nicely over the next hour where we get stuck into ultimately the genesis of the idea and how he is working next to the entrepreneurial founders. We talk about actually what clean label means. We talk about how a brand needs to evolve if they're going to truly create a huge platform in functional confectionery CPG. And also we talk about food tech and how that drives innovation. It is a really great and interesting discussion. And I think Stefan embodies exactly why Nix has developed a significant platform in Scandinavia and why people have been enthused to invest in their growth in international markets in the product range. So with that, we leave you to Stefan, the story of Nix. So sit back, relax, and of course, enjoy. Stefan, welcome to Inside the Four Walls. Great to have you on and great to talk all about Nick's, not Stefan's, but Nick's. So, um, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be uh, be part of the of the podcast or the show. Yeah, brilliant. Well, for there will be a lot of people out there who know Nick's. You've got um, you've got you've built. It's been built a lovely brand, uh, and particularly in Sweden and in Scandinavia. But just for those that aren't as familiar with it, it'd be great if you just give us a, a short summary of who Nix is as a brand, um, what you're offering in terms of products, and just uh, basically where you know where are you currently um, retailing and, and selling? Yeah. Um, so um, again, making a long story short. Um, it all started with uh, Niklas, our founder. So the Nick in the in the brand name. Um, he had a mother who um, suffered from diabetes, and he was pre-diabetic himself. Um, and he realized I need to do something about it. So he put his mom and himself on a diet to get better, and it worked. But he realized it was deadly boring. Because like uh, most of us, he enjoys a bit of candy and sweets. Um, and then he, he had a previous uh, company that he exited um, where he had an, yeah, basically a distributorship or an agency um, for music, um, home electronics and stuff. So then he figured, why don't I import 
healthy snacking products um, from wherever I can find, and I start selling them in Sweden. But when he started to do so um, and started to reading the science behind, he realized how much bad products are out there that claim to be healthy um, because he wanted something that didn't impact his blood sugar at all. Um, so he started basically working in his own kitchen and coming up with um, products, um, which was founded in the notion of, I do not want to have any impact on my blood sugar whatsoever. Um, and when he started that, he built a, a team that became really, really strong in building products where you replaced sugar as a start. Um, and we were good at doing the mixes and everything. Um, I think a lot, I mean, if you look at the United Nations goal, sustainability goals, I mean, there's one of the goals around health. And um, if you look at health in society, it's clear that overconsumption is, I mean, one of the bigger problems we have today and overconsumption in how we eat and obesity rates and all sorts of welfare diseases that comes with it. Um, so, I mean, our vision is really how can we provide better products to people? And we have started in the snacking categories, but there's nothing that sort of limits us into what we are offering. Only we started with bars, protein bars, candy bars, and ice cream. Um, and that's what we, what we do at the moment. Yeah. It's interesting because you, you effectively the proposition of the, the business therefore is, it's a terrible, I don't know whether I like the term, but it's a, it's a war on sugar, isn't it really? Uh, and the preposition of, of finding or offering consumers lower sugar or, I mean, how would you describe yeah, it? Exactly. Lower and sugar? Then, it's about better sugar, no added sugar. Because actually that in itself is I mean, a bit of a, a whirlwind of what do people understand? Yes, I mean, it again, it started in something that doesn't have impact on your blood sugar, and then you can't have any sugar, not even good if we if we would call something good sugar. Um, so we replace it. Then if you look at what's present in the market, a lot of sweetened products use maltitol as an example, which, as we know, is a sugar alcohol, and then that will have impact to your blood sugar. So we don't use products like that because, again, the blood sugar is where, where it started. But the proposition has broadened a little bit since we started because <clears throat> we launched a year and a half ago in the US. Um, and the science team found um, a fat in the US um, called Epogee. Um, and the point with this fat is that it's the only fat that you use in food products um, that basically have no calories, which is like 90% lower calories compared to all other fats. Um, so suddenly we could make an ice cream, which is sort of full fat in the experience, but the calories you gain from it is so little. So where it all started in sort of only sugar, um, I mean, we have realized that we can do healthier products in general. And what we do really, really well is finding new ingredients in the market where food tech is in the forefront. And then we are very good at commercializing it quickly. Um, because another example then is also, I mean, we know about how consumers don't only care about themselves, but about the planet. Um, so we have joined forces with a company called Perfect Day um, with their uh, whey protein that is coming from fermentation. So it's basically milk, but it was never in a cow. So again, you can suddenly provide the experience of milk products, but, but the vegan can eat them and you don't have the same stress on the products. as. Really interesting. So I didn't know that going into this call, but 
funnily enough, Perfect Day is getting a lot of, or has had a lot of press and PR, particularly in the US. So what, so what, tell us just very briefly, that's a strategic alliance, a partnership. Um, you've got exclusive access to their use of their ingredient or how, how does so, that so with, so with Epogee, we have worldwide exclusivity on ice cream and yeah, a lot of like frozen products. Um, so that, that's something no one else can replicate at this moment. And it took the company behind it 17 years to come up with a product. So it's not something that you would just innovate and then commercialize tomorrow. Um, on Perfect Day, it's, um, it's not an exclusivity in any way, but I think we have come to a place where we could teach um, or help, I mean, co-innovate together with Perfect Day in how to better use their protein because they had a very set process in how to use it. And I think we helped them refine that process so that we could buy the ingredient in its raw form and not in a like pre-mix. Um, and that enabled us to, to come with a lot better taste to the product um, compared to what we would have if we would just have used um, their original offering. So is it available in some of the products now? Is that a buy? Yeah, it's, so it's uh, so again, the perfect day protein and this CPG fat, I mean, it's approved by FDA, so it's available in the US, um, but those ingredients have yet to be approved in, I mean, many markets outside. So the European portfolio is not based on that, but we would be ready to um, take it in as, as soon as uh, Europe would uh, approve these uh, ingredients. Yeah, perfect. So we'll come back to the US because that's big news on your side as a business anyway, in terms of recent funding. And I, and I, and I think that also goes a bit hand in hand with when we talk about sort of what is Nix and what is it not. And we are in no means a clean label company trying to just have two or three ingredients that you find in your backyard. But we look to what is the best that food tech has to offer. Um, and then we will commercialize those products because we think that's the way forward rather than just being a clean label with two or three ingredients uh, in totality. Let's just dive on that a little bit more. Can you explain a bit more? Because I think that's actually really interesting. And I'm going to put a little, my own little spin on this first. And that is that, yes, clean label. Hey, people out there might not like me. I think it's a bit evangelical in terms of, yep. oh, it's so healthy. It's really good and stuff. And, and it needs to taste better. And ours does and so on. And that is lovely. You know, low ingredient deck, everything you, you can pronounce. I think it makes sense. But it doesn't really solve everything. Um, and it is not always easy to do. Actually, I do, I, I do have an opinion that uh, foods become a little bit homogenous and that they do taste a little bit similar because there is only so many foods to work with. I'm gonna, so maybe I'll paraphrase to put words in your mouth, but presumably you're seeing the need to really innovate is gonna be on the food tech side to overcome the challenges. Is that right? So just give me a bit more on that. Yes. I mean. I think that goes a little bit hand in hand with on one side you have, I mean, you could look at everything that is produced like ecological, for example, um, or organic or whatever the labeling might be. And that might be great for, for people who live close by and have access to it. But if you look at how you're going to feed the entire population or have a big impact, there's yet to be a sustainable way to do that with those type of growing things. Um, and then secondly, we do believe that the food tech and science can bring other aspects to food that the raw ingredients can't. And of course, someone can feel it's more natural and it's more close to home if they know exactly what's, what's in the product. But we believe there are better products 
that we can include. Um, and then you come into the whole discussion of sort of processed food versus non-processed, but people don't realize that when you boil an egg, you process that egg or wine is processed, it, it has been fermented and so on and so on. So um, the, I think the conversation on food tech at the moment is very early or even naive to some extent where people just think it's very black and white where I mean anything you do with the raw material that sort of makes it become different is processing it um, so just saying processed food is bad I mean then you probably don't really know what you're talking about yeah no, no, it is really interesting I mean again it's it's, it's quite eye-opening actually because to the surface and to the consumer Nick's is um a great tasting, uh, healthier alternative with a number of great products in various portfolios, which we'll, we'll, we'll come back to. But actually, what you're almost saying is, you know, as a driver that underpins a lot of the business is to, is to be on the forefront of food tech to find solutions for making the products better. Do, do you make the connection for the consumer? Because it is quite an important point from a branding point of view, a USP, or do you think it's just part of your armory? How, what is there a connection to be made for the consumer to think, oh, hell, that's amazing by me. This is a super interesting and relevant question. And it, it, it ties into something we might uh, go a bit deeper on a bit later is that in, in Europe, we are relaunching the brand as we speak. First product just hit the shelf. And when Nick started out, it was literally the key message was join our fight on sugar. That was the big thing we talked about. Um, and we got good traction among the really, really motivated people who wanted to find alternatives to sugar. But you kind of come to a plateau where you don't attract many consumers enough, especially when you work in the snacking categories, because people don't eat ice cream to lose weight. I mean, they've, they've already passed the stage where they say, okay, I want ice cream. I, I've decided not to be healthy. But when I have my ice cream, I can choose something that is healthier. But, but again, the main thing thereafter is to get to indulge themselves. So we are making that turn to speak so much more about flavor and taste. And again, if you look at our belief and our vision is that we don't want to play in a small part of the market that is sugar-free. We want the entire market to shift together with, I mean, the whole industry into healthier products. And we think we can lead that change. But that will only happen when we can provide products that are as tasty and, and the experience is very close to the sugar alternatives. So that's why we, I mean, coming back to sort of how much do we talk about? Are we food tech? Or what are we? What aren't we? We want to be products that taste damn good and give you a great experience and then for people who are interested they would realize it's healthy products but we don't want to be healthy products that try to imitate something else we want to be the first choice and therefore we have to be able to provide experiences like that and that's why we will market ourselves in that way so i mean i don't know if you see if the poster behind me is is big enough um, but it basically says, have a nice day every day. Um, it's not a lot in terms of just a copy sentence to talk about food tech or join our fight on sugar or whatever. The concept is more, our product is very tasty, which you can see on the product and you can eat it every day because it's no problem. It won't be unhealthy for you. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of key points in that. I suppose the joining the fight 
on sugar at the very beginning would have been a good one in terms of you know you get you steal a march you in the minority it cuts through right yeah. now everyone has a is joining the war on sugar and to be fair quite rightly so so in a way you need to join the 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 volume and everyone needs to get onto that but it's not differentiating in any way shape or form unless you have some unique usps or on yeah. the, the food tech which is a bit different the flavor and taste is a really interesting one. I mean, I suppose I read between the lines and say that your retailers wanted to put you in the low sugar aisle and say that you were a, a niche product and, and, and effectively you've had to basically say, we're going to have to work hard to show them that this is the norm now and that therefore it's yeah. not bigger than that. I think that's, that, that is itself. Yeah. Really interesting. That's, and that's again, if we just go back to what is, what is the core of, of delivering that type of innovation and, that's where we spoke about it uh, shortly when you and I spoke before that we do not want to go into filing a lot of patents on our own because that's a very slow process and these categories are moving so quickly. So we will instead always be looking for what are the latest commercial innovation or ingredient innovations that we can commercialize because that's something we do quicker than anyone else to take a new ingredient, make it into a product and get it to the market. So by the time other people have figured out, we will have moved to the next cool gadget that someone put into our toolbox. Yeah. Just, just on that, uh, for everyone listening, when you say everything moves so quickly, just uh, maybe just put, uh, again, an extra layer of Nick's or a, a Stefan's view on that. Just give people the concept that it, within Sweden, within Scandinavia, within your, you know, your biggest market, just what is the speed of change? And how quickly do you feel you have to move to keep up or to stay ahead? I mean, I think the the funniest example that people might be aware of, and it's it's not even in Sweden. I mean, it's in the US, the biggest market. If you look at what Halo Top managed to do in such a short time frame, because a couple of years ago, no one talked about better for you ice creams in a meaningful way. Halo Top came, they had a new concept, printing calories, very loud and clear on the pack, and a product that was okay um and it grew to to sell for several hundred million dollars within two years and became like the i think they had the biggest pint ice cream sku on the market but equally just how quickly they then fell down again because they didn't innovate and two years later there are 20 alternatives in the market with various healthy ice cream and the pace of innovation is just that, yeah, pints is so yesterday's news. Now it's uh, sandwiches, it's uh, stick ice cream or, or what have you. And then again, the category haven't even existed for a long time. Or I think that the equivalent in Sweden is um, probably the protein bar market, which a few years ago was just the gym products, really boring, uh, only targeting guys doing heavy lifting, tasted like shit and had, I don't know, 60% protein. And today you have, we probably have um, 20 to 30 protein bar makers in Sweden alone that are like local players that just find capacity outside in Europe. And all of them have different concepts when it comes to if it's uh, crunchiness or just taste or with, without sugar, more protein, less protein. And every six months, I mean, 10 new um, innovations are put on the market in, in different shapes and forms. Yeah, it is very pertinent because bars is an area that, I mean, I track and know relatively well. And 
the rate of launches, but also D-list is very, very high. I mean, it's actually phenomenal the rate of change. Um, it's almost like, and I, I say this to a number of people, effectively you have the next new better bar every six months is launched. Whatever that might be, I don't know. You know, that's up to a bit of consumer perception, but a lot of technical change, taste, texture, and everything. Every six months, something is superseded by the next big thing. And so it's a big commitment in bars. But let's just start there. Was bars the first kind of... Yep. We, well, we, we, the first product was a um, chocolate wafer bar. Um, and the innovation at that time was, <clears throat> again, gluten or wheat, gluten basically turns into sugar once you eat it. So you have the blood sugar spike. Again, that's what Niklas didn't want when he founded this. So our chocolate wafer bar is gluten-free and then sugar-free. Um, and that was quite an innovation at the time. I think the first iterations were around 2013. Um, very unsexy brand, very just functional. Um, and I think the product had everything from vitamins to proteins to yeah, gluten-free, sugar-free, and all the claims were on pack. Um, and then that product evolved into, because in Sweden, the biggest candy bar product or chocolate bar product is a wafer bar. So that was okay. I mimic that one, but make it a lot healthier. Um, and then it continued down that path. So it came uh, our peanuts and fudge, which is very similar to Snickers. You had a coconut, very similar to, um, to a bounty. And, and it kind of continued on that track to see, okay, what are the bigger, bigger players in the category and what can we replicate? Um, and then once we started to do a bunch of um, confectionery bars, we could see how, and this was before time, my time, but the, the team could see how the protein market was growing at extreme pace. And now we're like, I don't know, three years ago. Um, so of course they wanted to jump on that train and it's not so difficult to kind of add in protein to your confectionery bars and suddenly you have protein bars. Um, and, and that's the journey we've been on. And then of course, ice cream came in somewhere in the, in the middle as well as a, as a good category for us. And in, in terms of the bars, um, you jumped on the trend for protein bars, which is, you know, had a phenomenal degree of growth. And, and as you said earlier, a sort of exponential increase in the number of brands that are available. I mean, you know, just very simply is the protein bar now the biggest section of the bar range versus um, the original ones is that is that is that really as, no, big as what we think it is? Confectionery bars are still bigger, um, but again, I would also attribute that to the confectionery bars market being so crazy big in size that we are bigger from a market share perspective in protein bars than in confectionery bars. But again, the market is so much bigger. So yeah, so your contribution of share is bigger in protein bars, but actually the share of volume or, or revenue into the business is actually big on yeah. spectrum bars which is really interesting yeah that's that's fascinating and you make your own don't you yeah so we have our own factory um we are actually right now looking at buying a new one um, and buying new machinery because we are outgrowing the current one and that's also something that helps us on the innovation and speed to market side where I mean, we can basically just call the guys and say, we, we have an idea, can you test this? And if it works, then we can get it out on Amazon very rapidly. Of course, when we when we go into retail, the trade windows are the trade windows, uh, painful as it is. But um, 
what we do online can be very quick. Yeah. Uh, and do you and so you have the capability to make everything in your portfolio so the the way so we, we, don't produce, we don't produce the ice cream because we don't have the machinery to um, freeze the ice cream so we make all the ingredients ourselves um, and then we basically ship them in big bags to ice cream manufacturers and they um, put it together and cool it down to make the actual ice cream um, but again for us you can't find other products in the market that that has inclusions like we do. Um, so, for example, in our cookie dough um, ice cream, which is then gluten-free and uh, sugar-free, um, I mean, no one else does a good-tasting cookie dough that are gluten-free and sugar-free. So we do our own cookie dough. Um, we don't see the production of the like all the sauces. We have if it's a caramel sauce or a chocolate sauce, we produce that ourselves. Um, so again, we we have the the R and D capabilities to do it. Um, just freezing the ice cream is a pretty, what should I say, mechanical uh, process. Yeah. Which makes sense. Which makes sense. Um, uh, maybe you'll cover that in the future as as the business gets bigger. But from a from a bar point of view, you're making all of your own. So the full the full spectrum of capabilities and the different types of bar. Oh, you... the, we have we have a co-packer that does our wafer bars. Because again, if you come down to like the details of machinery, we don't have the machinery to do wafers ourselves. Yeah. Um, but again, it's our recipes, our chocolate, our everything that they coat the, the wafers with. Yeah, I think um, what's really interesting, within those who know the bar market particularly well, um, they we've gone through peaks and troughs of how much capacity is in the market. Then there's a bit more capacity. Then there's very little capacity. And then there's really big players with huge MOQs and then so on. I have found recently in a number of conversations, there's more brands where suddenly you find they make their own. And I, I, I kind of always scratch myself, well, how does that actually physically happen? Like did, did Nicholas, he started in the bench top and then at what stage did he suddenly have a line and he made some capital investment? I mean, so it's, as with many things in this company, it's a bit of a funny story because so we had a co-packer, um, relationship was great. Um, and yeah, midsummer Eve, that's a, that's a big holiday in Sweden. And um, Niklas and Carl, so Carl is the other uh, um, founder has been working with the, with the company and, and still is active. Um, they were called by, yeah, let's say the key account manager at the co-packer. And he said, um, the factory just burnt down and they said okay how how big of a problem is that and they said it it, it burned to the ground so we didn't have any production um, at that point um and then they started talking and said can you guys just put up a line for us because you have the expertise um so then two of the most senior guys at the co-packer said yeah let's let's do it um so then they set up just the first line um that worked then they bought the bigger yeah, real estate or facility um, where we increased the size of the lines. And um, from there we have been, I mean, buying new machinery as we have needed to. Um, but now we're at the point where we're outgrowing it. So now we're looking to like eightfold our output uh, with the new factory we are uh, looking at. Wow. So how many bar, how many million bars can you churn out a year? You know off the top of your head? A lot. I don't dare to give you a good answer. No. 
Ah, don't worry. I guess maybe the bigger question for everyone listening is: Will you will you co-manufacture for for others? Like, is that something in the plan? It will. Um, our um, our philosophy at the moment is that it helps us in sort of improving our R and D capabilities because uh, I mean. From the little experience I have seen in the, the co-packing area right now, it's more people who want the bar that works, that is not super innovative or super something. Um, and so they want our help with putting together recipes and, and stuff like that. And given we don't use, as I said, maltitol or other sugary sweeteners, or that might have an impact on your blood sugar, when we do so, um, we get exposed to how different materials work or ingredients work differently which gives our R&D and then production team new ideas or new thoughts on, on what can be done that we might not have known previously um, is there um i mean it, it makes a pretty straightforward business and a financial decision you've got your own manufacturing you yeah. know you could be the ability to do it with for other third-party brands which makes sense how does that really work on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of managing the fine line of what you keep for yourself and the brand and the kind of relationships you feel with your with your potential third parties i mean what's your view on that you haven't quite done it yet in terms of starting it so what well, how do you see the pros and cons of that working i mean the pro being the i, mean, I, I think we would not produce i mean that we are very open with it people would ask i mean we would not produce the same quality that we have ourselves so for example products without multiple we don't produce for anyone else because that's our big thing in the market that we can do different and we can get them to taste really well very few others can so if we produce for others we help them but in um with a lowers or less set of uh, USPs than we can have ourselves. Um, but again, the people so far that we have been discussing and that we have been manufacturing for, that has not been what they are out to do. Um, it might be a online bars shop that want a private label and they just want a cheap product that they can put out there to build their margin. And yeah, then we can help them with that. But it's not like the yet at least state-of-the-art coolest brand with the best innovation come and say hey can you help us innovate because i i don't think they would want us to to be involved in their innovation either so i think it's a bit it take care of itself to some extent that the, the people who want to work with the most advanced innovation or come with new stuff yeah they would probably come to us you probably come to us for more mass production of something that is simple to do and then that can help yeah you. It, it is actually, it does make sense. So when you discuss it like that, you sort of write. My, my assumption is it will take care of itself. And uh, I guess reading between the lines again, you're almost then telling everyone, but there's that many barman, bar brands out there now in Sweden or in Scandinavia or further afield that you're not really probably going to be shy. If no, no, exactly. Because it's, I mean, if, if you look at it, because it is to say, yeah, but you put products in the market that will compete with yourself. Yes, we will, but someone else would otherwise have done so because again capacity capacity is not a scarce resource at all so um we can just as well um make a little bit of money for supporting people rather than seeing them in the market anyway from somewhere else and um one last question on bars before we uh, before we go into the ice cream you've got you've got a couple of bar product you know parent product type bars in your range 
um, it's not it's not a huge huge range by any stretch of the imagination versus other brands. What what is your view on how many bars do you think are sustainable in the market for a brand? I mean, and and what how does that really work? Like, do you view because people have gone, well, there's my 20 gram version, so I'll do a 15 gram version. And then there's been like, well, there's my classic, so I must have the plant first. It's very sort of on paper, a bit dry. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of personality to it. I know there's loads of texture and flavor stuff coming through as well. And I understand what people are doing. I just, from your view, you know, it feels a very, from the outset, started off with confectionery focused innovation. What's your view on the innovation in bars and, and how many bars can you launch or? Are you saturated in how many you've got in your range at the moment? So, I mean, I think there are probably, say, three different types of innovation, the way you can look at it, where one is just a format play. So do I have my 50 gram, 100 gram, 200 gram, and then the bag of the bars or whatever, which is just playing to different, um, different sizes and, and locations? Um, then it's the part which is more on the functional benefit side. If we go into protein bars where you can add value in, I don't know, more protein or better protein or vegan or whatever that might be. And then as we are also in the confectionery side, you really have the flavor side. So is there something we can do that someone else can't? So now I'm taking the example from ice cream because it's more straightforward. But like, as I said, we are the only ones who do a good cookie dough sugar-free without gluten so yeah that's an innovation on the flavor side and the, the people can't really really mimic um and on the format side it's just a matter of size in my opinion um because if if the retailers will award you with as many SKUs of the same flavor that you deserve and if you can show that you bring more profit to the table and then they can grow the category i mean you will be able to do a lot. I mean, just, I don't know, look at what's big in Europe, Melka, uh, for example. I mean, they will have chocolate bars of any size anyone can <laughs> can think of. Um, and it, it goes a bit hand in hand with the other type of innovation as well. If you don't rotate enough, I mean, given still, even if online is growing, the retailer market is still, or grocery market is still where, where the magic happens at scale. So of course you need to prove yourself in the shelves, and I think that the, I mean you have in, in Sweden at least the biggest player is Barbells. I mean they have, I don't even dare to say if it's fifteen different uh, flavors they have of their protein bars, and they probably launch three, four new every six months. Um, sometimes something rotates out that is performing bad, but it still goes. So I think the problem is rather. For the smaller players or new entrants who come with many bars at the same time, thinking that all of them will perform, and then you disappoint people yeah. because you come in and you might only generate revenue, which is worth for one SKU, but you do it across four, and then you will be kicked out entirely. Um, so it, it, it's a size game. Yeah, I think there's certain brands that can have a huge portfolio. Um, and remember that because they're direct to consumer or whatever it might be. One theme that's come yeah. through a lot of the podcasts is um, let's call it simplified sophistication. So actually overall people are having a more focused and simplified approach to the brands and the, you know, the products that are, are gaining real cut through. Um, I actually wonder whether the biggest thing 
to all of this now is finding the right bar or two or three bars for a brand but you've got to have the commitment to getting behind it and turning yeah, it over and, launching yeah, and, I, and I think the the difficult sort of um or a new or relatively I shouldn't say new category but a category that is at least right now in Sweden and in the Nordic markets to some extent exploding is energy drinks so all the new variants of a Red Bull that you get today and they have collagen or whatever type of vitamins and everything in many of those brands you don't have core SKUs because it's so innovation driven and the target group just wants new 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 so you see the entire portfolio being rotated over and over again and I'm a little bit curious to see if is that the route where sort of protein bars go because right now no one it's difficult to innovate with function right now um, in a meaningful way so people more tend to innovate on flavor that becomes meaningful innovation then the question is is the behavior such that you have a core bar or is it such that you just rotate and then 18 months down the line you just reuse what you used to have yeah um, really really important questions actually that i don't know whether there are right or wrong answers at this stage other than whichever people have to make a commitment to one or the other and and to and to go after it yeah. right now it is there's a lot of bars in the market um which means that people have to um be really strong on their approach to it which is fascinating um when did the ice cream come into the portfolio how old is the the genesis of the ice cream so the ice cream is a little bit more than two years old in the market um and it it started in sweden um where it's it was just i mean one innovation like many others um and i think what we realized is that if you take the an analogy from or start in um in confectionery producing a sugar-free like milk chocolate bar which is in most markets the biggest sku out there just pure milk chocolate it's so difficult because the big multinationals have decided how milk chocolate should taste by market. So in Sweden, it's uh, Mondelez, in Finland, it's Fatser, in Germany, it's Melka, and so on. And they've decided like, this is what milk chocolate should taste like. And it's extremely difficult to mimic that taste when you don't use sugar. However, when you come into products that are, if we call them mashups, so take a Snickers bar, the chocolate is not as important because you have the peanuts, you have the caramel and everything. It's a little bit the same with ice cream. If you were to try like just to make a pure flavor, which people have a relationship to, that's difficult. But when you do, again, a cookie dough or like a what, sea salt caramel and so on, you start mixing a lot of things. And then it's the totality of the experience that becomes important. And it's easier or it has, for us, it has been easier to come up with all those flavor mixes in ice cream um, because we don't have to mimic something exactly because the expectations are very differentiated. Um, and, and that we realized pretty quickly when the ice cream came. Um, and then we realized we can make a, an experience that is closer to conventional ice cream or full fat, full sugar ice cream. Um, so that's why I became so interested in continuing to innovate in it. And then it has shown itself that we have been very successful as well. And again, in the US, 
we we started with uh, the ice cream only. Yeah. And um, where have you got to today, Stefan? I mean, this is something we, we you know we we ask and we've double checked. But uh, Nick's at the end of twenty twenty. What, what you know? What what kind of size, relative size, are you as a business? And I am always interested the contribution between the bars and the ice cream towards that. Just roughly, in the- we had we had um, a revenue a bit north of twenty million dollars, um, and probably 50-50 bars ice cream. Of course, the U.S. helps bringing up the ice cream portion because of the size of the U.S. market. So uh, in in Europe, it's maybe more a 60-40 overweight uh, bars. And and what was the impact last year, stunted impact on, on COVID, albeit Sweden themselves took a different approach to many other European markets in terms of a, a lot, non-lockdown. Yeah, so, so, so was there an impact? So I think um, it was an impact, but it was more on the mix of the portfolio rather than the total business. Because what we saw was, I mean, and what other markets obviously saw that as well, that, I mean, protein bars and the, the snacking behavior just died when people stopped going to the gym or stopped going out at all. Um, I mean, convenience stores just lost all their sales. But on the other hand, people sitting at home bought a lot of ice cream um, because they wanted something to do. So... I mean, you win some, you lose some. Um, We had a much bigger impact in the US um, because we were launching the ice cream. um, I mean, the trade windows, as they are in ice cream in most markets, Europe, US, you kind of get your products into retail in March, April timings. So we had gotten listings in many customers. Um, We shipped out the first orders. So um, the warehouses of the customers were stocked up with ice cream. And then COVID came. And as people will remember, the only thing you focused on was shipping toilet paper and frozen pizza. So no customers kind of cared for making sure that they executed the new trade window or range review um, in April. So it took us a couple of more months to get up on the shelves. Then we did brilliant once we were on the shelf, but we had a few months delay. And that was, of course, very stressful, not knowing. I mean, you had sold your first couple of products, but consumers couldn't really buy them at this at the pace we expected so that was a big stressful moment uh, um, to I mean just manage cash during that period obviously yeah but you you're comfortable and confident for the year ahead in terms of that the whole thing's settling down in terms of and you're seeing that already yes I mean now once we are in the stores of course people can buy us and then it's it's not so much of a problem and um, we also had to think wide, so we started a DTC platform in the US, so selling ice cream from our own website, direct delivered to consumers. Um, and that has become a very important revenue stream for us. Um, so that was something that, yeah, we, without COVID, we might have not have been so aggressive in getting that off the ground and, and making it a big thing for us. And will the split, so if you're 50-50 now, but, you know, that there was a bit of a probably, there was a, a, a category shift over this year anyway, but let's just say, you know, broadly you are 50-50. W- w- 
how does that change over time? Do you think um, is there more mileage in a in a better for you ice cream, uh, low sugar, great taste there, and is there less competitors to do that? I mean, it feels like there's a new bar every think- day, so I feel ice cream's tougher. So if you if you overcome if you overcome a big sort of hurdle, then it, it's almost like you get a free race a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a little bit like that, and I think. Uh, the uniqueness of our products in ice cream at the moment that can of course shift, I think is even bigger than it is in bars. So of course it's, um, we have a better proposition to consumers and that's what will drive ice cream faster than bars. Um, I think, I mean, the combination of us taking out sugar and having the Epogee fat in the US, I mean, if you look at the market leading better for you ice cream, you have Halo Top and you have Rebel Creamery. Um, Halo Top is typically um, not very low on net carbs and the whole keto trend that you can go after, but they're low on calories. Then you have Rebel Creamery, they have very few net carbs because they are a keto product, um, but they are full fat, so they're pretty high on calories. We are the only brands who can give you low calories and low net carbs. While at the same time, again, most importantly, we taste good and we have the creamy feeling you should have when you eat ice cream because we can put the epogee fat in it so we can create a very rich and creamy feeling, which competition at the moment is, is not capable of. Um, so again, that's that's where we have our stronghold right now in terms of innovation, either exclusive or just because we have been the f- first ones to, to figure it out. And I, I didn't ask it, but I have to ask it now because it's suddenly back in the front of my mind. Does that fat have any any role to play in bars? Um, we're looking into that as well. I think that fat can have a lot of applications in many different categories, but it is difficult to work with it. So whoever does it needs to be very committed uh, on the R&D side. Okay. I, 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 can, I can see where you're going that. Okay. Because, because again, um, once we signed up for the use of Epogee, um, that fat, they were almost thinking about binning or I mean, throwing the project away because they had been working on it for 17 years, but no one had been able to commercialize it. So, I mean, they had this great product, but they did or great ingredient, but they didn't know how to use it. So not, it was not until we could use, we could use it in our production that it was like, oh, this is a great opportunity for us. Great, great example though. Sometimes the best things have been around for a while and people just yeah. didn't know quite what to do with them. Um, there's lots of those. Um, I must ask you about the consumer, Stefan. Um, I, I come from this, I mean, the, there is the basic question of who's the next consumer, you know, and how would you describe them? It's a bit of a, my, my, my angle to this is, you said earlier about snacking going off a cliff and you mentioned because people weren't really going to the gym. So you, so by default, you sort of suggested a quite active sporty consumer. And there is a whole sports nutrition, active nutrition market saying we're going mainstream. We always had protein bars from the outset. But at the same time, when you describe Nick's, there's nothing about yeah, so, it. No, so, so I think that was more, more a description of what happened during COVID and given we have a protein bar part or portfolio as part of our entire portfolio that was the place where we saw the biggest impact and it's not necessarily how we target i would say more on the contrary um because our our consumer as we 
define uh, define it is we call them trendless drivers. Um, and again, they are obviously demographically present everywhere. But if you look at where they over-index, they are young and female and urban and enjoy fashion trends um, and such things. Our insight um, on that target group, which we call trendless drivers, is that they live a life that is so full of pressure, external, internal, they live in social media, everything they see is perfect. You have the perfect job, perfect uh, home, perfect boyfriend, girlfriend, everything is so pr perfect. And if you look at the proposition of, if we think of the majority of the, especially protein bars, because again, the, there aren't as much competition in like sugar-free candy because people don't do that as well. So now I'm a bit more in the protein bar territory. And what you see in all these, companies instagram flows or how they advertise it's the perfect people it's it's muscles it's gym outfits it's yeah people look really good um we want to position us as something which takes away i mean you move from must do's to just do's so instead of oh, now i worked out so hard now i can allow myself a bar the, the, the whole thing about Nix is you don't have to worry. Our products are good for you. You, you can have one, have another one. It, it doesn't matter. Don't feel ashamed. Don't, don't feel all that pressure on you. I mean, this is like a, a free zone or, or a pause space for you where you can leave all those pressures behind. Um, so we do not want to go into that sort of gym cult, which I think, I mean, Bear Bells is obviously doing a fantastic job in, in terms of the consumer they have found and with, with the right insights and how they've managed to cater to that with their product and brand offering. But again, that's that's not at all where we want to be. I think we have been a little bit too much towards that space with the whole, again, join our fight on sugar and has been an activistic brand and, and, and a lot of that. Um, we want to leave that a little bit behind. And again, it's a joyful product. You should, you should just be happy. Have another one. You you, It's not a problem for you, just for the joy of it. But at the same time, everyone who's active or may go to the gym, there's no reason why they wouldn't buy into Nix anyway. So I mean, we 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 believe so, and then we think again that we don't want to aspire to or we don't want to push the agenda of sort of mental illness. Again, our products and then the foundation of the brand is to to provide healthy products to to everyone, and if we do that by playing on. I don't know, bad conscience or, or stress and pressure. I mean, you just move the problem from, I don't know, being a physical problem to a mental problem. Yeah, it's actually a really good point, actually. Never really thought about that, but it's a good one. Um, no, it is fascinating. I just, um, it, it just, there's a lot of people coming in from all different angles. So, you know, a bevel's coming through, let's, you know, yeah. a, a Glambia with Nutramino, a bit more Danish, but obviously in Sweden as well, with more of a sports one coming in. You've got Mars and Snickers launching with a high protein version. So you've got this conversion from all angles and, 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 and almost definitions, are, are, you know, almost a, a null and void a little bit now. It's just that it's all about lifestyle and it's all about attitudinal elements to it. So it's just interesting to know what your view is on it. Um, but within that, you described the word trendy. I've always used the word stylish to describe Scandinavia. Is that, is, you know, if you were to describe the Scandinavian market, or maybe let's start with Sweden, is that, how would you describe it 
in yeah, contrast to other markets in Europe? I mean, is it, it's, a sta- it's a trendy place, huh? I mean, you look trendy. Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference, as I see, which is, I mean, which is present in any grocery store you go into, so it's not specific to bars or anything. I mean, it's just as prominent in personal care and the others. A lot of the healthier stuff you would buy in, I say, countries below Scandinavia or south, south of Scandinavia, um, they either look like uh, medicine or they they don't look so nice. They look so functionalistic, be it if it's a lot of claims with proteins and percentages and stuff. Um, whereas I think we are in the forefront of making anything from them organic, healthy, vegan, just look really nice. Um, because we have moved beyond that you need sort of the boring, ugly authenticity to support that it's believable what you offer. Um, and we have moved more into yeah, more trendy and more um, clean products. And not clean again in terms of the ingredient, but if you look at front of packs in many categories, you don't type 52 claims on them because that doesn't look nice. It's That's not the reason to believe. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um- Let's just just briefly on the on the um, a bit of a quick question on the on the ice cream. Will you go high protein on that? Do you think you need to have a high protein version of it, or do you think ice cream just doesn't need that as long as it's actually you know with your other lower sugar with the way that you've created it? Because that has been done. So speaking, speak, and I I will only speak for Europe now because the team in the US will be a lot more into the details of everything. So I kind of I isolated to Europe and. I have yet to see the consumer behavior to eat high protein ice cream. I don't know after you worked out or something else. I personally think that high protein ice cream will just make people feel that must taste very crappy. So I won't buy it. There will of course be a few who buys it, but I find it difficult to believe that the categories that stem so like at the core of ice cream is joy, taste, experience just kind of taking all of that and then pop it with protein making it be i don't know dry rock solid and not taste very well i i've yet to see it work um so i i will not be a first mover going into that space probably well i mean there's been a few there's definitely a way in uk and a few others um that have that have had a a go there and to be fair i don't know um but maybe you'll have all of the uh, maybe you'll have all of the protein manufacturers. Yeah, and and and, t- and typically, whenever I say I would not do this, typically the rest of the team convinced me that I was wrong, and then we end up there anyway. So yeah. maybe that was the cue for saying protein ice cream is the next launch we do. Well, <laughs> you've got. We'll put it this way: you've got. You know, if I just you said twenty million US dollars, and if you say ten million US dollars of that is the US, and coming on to this, you've got thirty million US dollar venture capitalist sort of funding to go into the US on that. I suspect all the major dairy ingredient suppliers might want to have a conversation with you to convince you otherwise. Um, so uh, maybe you should just be uh, allowing them to knock on the door and give you some tasting samples because I'm sure they'll say, say we, are, the we, are very, we are very open-minded. Then it's just my, I see myself as the bitter cynical guy in the company um, who tried to, to um, professionalize it from the big FMCG space, whereas, uh, the pace of innovation and the drive from the team is, is 
fascinating and they will come up with the mar- with what the market wants regardless of what i um, what i try to preach from the sideline which, which is a really nice last couple of areas um I mean, you just had a significant amount of funding to go into the US. I mean, just give us a snapshot of what, what that actually is and, and what that really means. What does that really mean to the business in terms of what you'll do with it? So in the US, when you go into grocery retail, very often you have to buy your space on the shelves. Listing fees, slotting fees. Um, yeah, that's many names. Um, and that's money you pay up front. So of course that's a big investment for us, um, and then just knowing how I mean incredibly competitive all of these categories are. I mean if if you go for the distribution, you just need to spend on marketing as well. Um, then well, of course we have, distribution of ice cream across America must be tricky, no? Um, as in the US with many things, not necessarily so tricky as expensive. Uh, <laughs> of course, you can define that tr- that expensiveness as tricky to, to make it work. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a portion as well. But um, I mean, it's it has been crucial for us to have a team on the ground who understand the US and who, who can meet up and talk to people and do everything. Um, and again, with the money, we can hire a few more key people um, and I think that's also crucial. Sitting and trying to do the US as, I don't know, an export market. I mean, I, I don't give it a high likelihood of success. And um, yeah, so we wish you the rest of luck. There's a lot of money to go behind it, but I suspect that's a drop in the ocean, really, in terms of what you actually need to do. So um, it'll, be, it'll be fascinating to talk to you in 12 months' time to find out how the, the US business and ice cream is growing. I suspect is, the opportunity is, is high. Um, what's the appetite of the business to um, venture beyond um, the stereotype of being Scandinavian and Swedish into other European markets? I mean, you're there in in some online players, aren't you? But in in, in a more in a more stronger version. So I think I mean that's obviously what part of this the money we take in also will allow us to take a bit more risk when we go international. Um, I mean, obviously, that's the good thing with them being online and being big on Amazon. It, it's not a very risky play, right? I mean, if you realize that it works, you can just cut your losses. But if you go in properly and try to go into retail in other countries, it will take resources. Um, so I would be very surprised if we, during 2021, don't have a few successes in, uh, in different markets uh, across Europe um, in physical retail. Brilliant. And um, last question, it's about you, Stefan. I'll ask for you. Background, uh, financial analyst, Procter & Gamble, then into Unilever. So how have you, I mean, I guess two things. How have you found the jump from, let's say, the really you know, big institutions, big FMCG as well, into uh, a, much, a much smaller, because it is, um, entrepreneurial and working with um, entrepreneurial founder. Um, how have you found that? Um, change and is that dynamic um is it is it is it working i mean i'm sure it is but um, yes i mean on, on one hand i think i or i have nicks as we have been very lucky with founders that have been very humble in stepping aside on areas that are not of their expertise i mean the founders are still working full-time in the company um but they do not try to sort of second guess everything I try to do in, in running the company. Um, 
So that has been a, a great benefit. And then I'm also very humble um, for the fact that I came in at the exact right timing for when I can contribute a lot. Because if I would have come in earlier when a much more entrepreneurial drive was needed, I would probably not have been able to drive so much change and effort because it, it's one thing to take a company from zero to 10 million, but taking it from 10 million to 100 or 200, I think are different things. And I am so much better for the latter part than I would have been, I don't know, going around with a briefcase under your arm and selling this knocking doors. Um, but again, that's why where the drive of the entrepreneurs have been extremely powerful. And how are you going to, I mean, but it happens like whether it's whether it's big buyouts or the you know big corporate you know the it comes in the mindsets you know we can do things differently how are you going to manage your let's call it a classical background classic background but yet maintain that sort of entrepreneur but yet you're gonna have to put systems yes yeah, so I, I think i mean the 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 two things i've been good at historically in my career has been building teams and and making them perform at their best or at the top of their capacity and prioritizing because that's the point right when a company like this grows i mean the priorities or the the opportunities are so many i mean we can innovate in any category we can talk to any customers and what i do is basically just helping to help themselves to just go for the bigger and meaningful opportunities that can be something and then i just try to remove obstacles for when they want to do stuff. Um, so I've, I've not come in so much with a super processy way that of course could also be brought into a company from the big FMCGs and just say, now we structure every process according to this process chart because I don't think that's what the company reads, needs right now. It's, it's prioritization um, that we need. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and, and last question. What's the next big category? Maybe you don't want to say, are you working on the next big category of products or are you working on the next set of food tech developments to work out the next category? Which way does it come? Um, all of it. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, the, with the founder, Niklas, being so involved, or I mean, leading basically the innovation work and having our own fact, uh, factory, the inputs we get are so versatile. So on one hand, you might have a marketing team that says, this is a big opportunity in the market. I want to go for this category or this new product. But you also have the factory who constantly innovates and says, this is what we can do. So again, as an example, I mean, when we started shipping the cookie dough ice cream, the guy said, hey, we can put these cookies into the oven and bake them. We can do the world's best gluten-free, sugar-free cookies or when we did our protein bar with a no-gut filling. They said, no-gut filling, that's Nutella, right? Nutella spread. Yeah, we can, we can do probably the world's best Nutella spread without sugar. And, and, it, and that's kind of how it goes on and on. So you always get that list of this is what we can do. And then you have the market on the other side and it's, yeah, trying to figure out which, which will be most beneficial going after. Again, coming back to that prioritization is so important. Um, 
And sometimes the market doesn't know what it wants yet anyway. So you've got to have a little bit of gut feeling in that, which is why having an entrepreneurial founder on your, uh, yeah. on your shoulder chirping at you with his latest innovation is probably not a bad uh, balance to have. Um, oh, and, that, and that's also where having a strong D2C platform in the US will come very handy because then you can try so many things again with lower risk and see what works with consumers. And then once you know, it's, it's easier coming to re physical retailers and saying, this is what we think you should launch because it works rather than, I mean, producing a shitload of stock and then ramping up uh, production and everything just to realize it didn't work. Brilliant. Amazing. What a great conversation. What a great conversation. It's, it really is interesting um, and um, pretty cool business. For those listening who haven't tried your products, you should. Um, I do think actually the, the Snickers equivalent is one of the best Snickers equivalent ones out there. We discussed that prior to this podcast. because I have actually gone out and bought with my own money just because we, I wanted to give it a go. Um, so yeah, it's uh, a fascinating business. L love the, the spirit, but love the thinking behind it around the food tech piece and there's some really fascinating stuff the whole way through that just yeah just gives people an, an insight into why you create the business that you've got so far so um stefan thanks so much for joining us thank you so a big thank you to stefan for joining me today and giving us the insight to him and to the story of nick's the beauty and the reason I do this podcast is obviously to find out a little bit more about brands that you just could never really get close to until you talk to people directly. Now, Nix is a great example of that. Now, listen, we get a great perspective on Sweden and the Scandinavian market. We get an amazing perspective on bars, protein bars versus confectionery. We get a really interesting insight about how they developed a brand and a business based on a war on sugar, but how that as a concept enables them to broaden into multiple categories and not necessarily be stereotyped to any one. I think that's fascinating for the development of growth in the future. I think there's a great discussion about clean label. I think there's also a great discussion in between the lines insights around how they even refer to some of their bars as the bounty bar and the Snickers bar. And that in itself is quite an important statement for those listening and understanding of healthy snacking about just where protein bars actually are in the market. But there's always one thing per podcast that always makes me stand on end. It gives me a little bit of the shivers. It gives me the moment to think, I need to go think about that. It's fascinating. It's refreshing. It's great to hear. It stimulates other people to think about what they're doing and why. And today's was all about their lens of innovation through food tech. Just a little step back, we know innovation is crucial to growth. We can innovate in multiple ways. You can innovate, renovate, launch new flavors, new SKUs, new pack sizes. You can come up with a completely new product, go into new categories. It encompasses multiple things. It could be a technological change, but genuinely for the biggest innovations to be successful and to give yourself an advantage versus competitors, it has to have something sticky, a little bit more to it. And their lens is to look at innovation through the view of food tech. What is out there that is going to enable them to achieve something that can't currently be achieved now and enable them to meet and exceed the expectations of consumers. That in itself is not rocket science, 
But does people do people really have that at the core of their innovation strategies or their brands today? I'm not convinced many people actually do. And through no follow their own because it's a very difficult thing to do. I'm just going to say that that's my one big thing from the podcast today, which I thought was truly fascinating. And if they have managed to use the two ingredients that they refer to, the fat and of course the perfect day in the US, which some people will be familiar with, to achieve something sticky, then it's going to take time for people to catch up and it's going to give Nix an advantage. It's going to give them something unique. And if they make their products taste great, which is the ultimate driver of the business today, then they've got something to rebuild on. And that is already on top of a 20 million euro business just north of with some significant funding to extrapolate and accelerate that growth into the US. What a great story. Definitely learned a lot. Healthy snacking has a lot going for it. So I hope you enjoyed. I hope you took something from it. Um, If you're the dairy suppliers out there, you definitely need to knock on the door, Stefan, and convince him that there's room for protein in his ice cream. So hopefully people have got something from this. So with that, we will leave you to it. And of course, we will be back shortly with another great episode, this time next week. Bye-bye for now.